Good evening, guys. Welcome to episode 37 of the Christopher Anastasio podcast. It is Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. Kind of can't believe that uh, it's already October and uh, we're into uh, fall and Halloween and all that kind of stuff. So uh, definitely sneaks up on you. So um, anyway, guys, welcome. Uh, like I said, this is episode 37. Um, planning on building on episode 36 which was um, sort of the first episode in response to um, the revelations this past weekend about President Trump's taxes and trying to take a sort of critical, in-depth look at them um, that maybe goes a step or two beyond what you're hearing on the news or in, you know, local media or whatever – trying to peel it back a little bit. Um, I'm trying to understand it as well as I can. Uh, and I'm, and I, I would like to help you guys understand as well as you can, if there's anything I can shed light on or, or uh, you know, expand upon, um, clarify, whatever. Uh, you know, this is a fascinating topic for me. I'm very interested in, in uh, taxes and tax law and tax implications and so forth, legal ways to, <laughs> to avoid paying taxes, of course, not the other kind. So, so this is something I'd naturally sink my teeth into and would want to share with you guys. So that's kind of what we're going to do here is we're going to pick up from episode 36 and expand into the next topic that I wanted to focus on from, um, from the Trump tax uh, findings, if you will. Now, as I said, episode 36 was focused on – I kind of zeroed in on – I have to make a correction, guys. In episode 36, I mentioned that there was a revelation that Trump was $300 million or so in debt – it's actually over 400 million. It's like 420 something, I think, 421, 427. So I was wrong about that. I was off by about 100 million on that. But uh, those numbers, who cares, right? Um, but anyway, in episode 36, I, I used that revelation about how much money Donald Trump owed to talk more about how wealthy people versus non wealthy people view debt. Okay. And then in doing that, in getting into the subject of debt, and, and Donald Trump's debts in particular, I then sort of carried the discussion into um, an examination of a particular publication that Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago put out in the 1960s called Modern Money Mechanics. And I used it as a vehicle to kind of illustrate how our very economic system is built upon debt. I mean, just quite frankly, the system wouldn't run the system wouldn't work without the constant creation of debt, okay? So that's kind of the key. Like if there's a fulcrum here uh, in terms of where you fall out in, in terms of understanding this, it's if you understand that, then you're probably going to understand everything else, right? If you, In other words, if you understand that our system is built on the constant creation of debt, well, then you would understand how wealthy people use it to get wealthy, and you would understand how when non-wealthy people don't use it, they'll never get wealthy, right? You know what I mean? Like you would generally be able to pick up on that. Um, if you can't grasp it, if you say, well, I just don't understand how it could be based on debt and when debt's bad and I'm not supposed to have a credit card. If you can't get out of the blocks on that, then you probably will never understand why the system kind of operates the way it does and why people are able – you know, certain people are able to take advantage of it and get wealthier and wealthier. Okay, It's kind of a, you know, it's a hinge – that you have to grasp in order to get the rest of it, okay? So I really spent some time on that in episode 36. I mean, I will definitely be coming back to it. I think there's there's just so much to explore there. There's so many angles to come at it from. 
But it, it, I actually kind of surprised myself. I can't believe it took 36 episodes to bring up Modern Money Mechanics. I mean, that's that is a huge deal. It's a it's a publication from the Federal Reserve. It's not you know it's not some you know lunatic in a cave somewhere who came up with that. I mean, it's you know it's it's our Federal Reserve system, the central banking system of the United States that published this document, and you know in very unvarnished terms explains how money is expanded. Money is is created. Okay. In other words, a certain amount of money creates more money. Okay. I'm putting it very rudimentary there, but obviously when you guys read the document, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, And one thing I just want to do, I had to clean this up uh, from last episode or just footnote this before we get into the new topic. Um, But in episode 36, you know, I was talking about modern money mechanics and I, I think I I drew everybody's attention to a table uh, further down in the documents, actually on page 11, uh, that summarizes how as an initial deposit is made. And the example used here was $10,000. That's how you know this was made. In, this was written in the 1960s. Okay, that was you know a lot of money then. Um, but, but you know I think if it was written today, it'd be like a million dollars. But the point is, it shows how an initial deposit of $10,000 that a person makes in a bank becomes $90,000 worth of loans and investments for the banks, okay? And I think I I can't hammer that point home hard enough, okay? (laughs) You got to check this table. If you did one thing, if you were like, "Ah, I'm not reading this 40-page document that Chris talked about, no problem. But just go in it, Google it. It'll be right at the top. If you put in Modern Money Mechanics, first result, uh, the actual uh, website is upload.wikimedia.org, and then of course you know backslash whatever modern money mechanics. But it should be the very first result in Google. Go straight to page eleven. Look at the very top where it says through stage after stage of expansion, quote unquote money can grow to a total of ten times the new reserves supplied to the banking system. And then right below that, there's a table shows you the initial reserve provided of ten thousand dollars. And it walks you through stage one of expansion, stage two, three, four, five, all the way down to like stage 20. Uh, so it skips ahead. It goes one through 10, then to 20, and then to what they call the final stage. Okay. And at that final stage, it's sort of exhausted. That $10,000 uh, potential for, for uh, expansion has been exhausted. And through all of those stages, $90,000 has been created. So it's just such a key central point to understand when you're like, well, what do you mean the system runs on debt? What do you mean it's built on debt? If I give a bank $10,000, I've given the bank the opportunity. And when I say the bank, I kind of mean a series of banks. Okay. But when I give a bank $10,000, I give the banking system the opportunity to build off of $90,000 worth of loans and investments because they can take my 10000 multiply it by nine. Right, because I have a, one, a ten to one reserve ratio, so nine times the ten k deposit, they now have ninety thousand dollars to loan out and make interest on. Okay, I mean it's one thing to say, oh, I gave them ten k, and they make interest off ten k. You know that might make you frustrated enough, right, that they can put your money to to work and make money off of it, right? But no, it's 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 more than that. They can take your money, multiply it by nine, and then make money off of that. Okay, so that's really the key central takeaway from episode 36. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure I mentioned that later in the episode. I mean, you have to really have hung in there because I, I don't think I got to it until like the 40 plus minute mark or maybe even 50 plus minute mark. But that is so crucial to understand and to take away when you're trying to get your head wrapped around this whole debt creation thing. Okay.
All right, so having said all that, guys, uh, you know, last night, of course, was the uh, first presidential debate, uh, President Trump, candidate Biden. Pretty crazy. I mean, a lot of uh, strong reactions, um, you know, as I watched some of the uh, the post-game analysis, <laughs> okay? I mean, I call it that because it's just, you know, it's just sheer entertainment at this point. Um, I don't think, I mean, I just think most reasonable people wouldn't have walked away from that debate um, for either side thinking that crisp, clear policy positions were being articulated. I think it was a different kind of discussion than that. I think Dana, uh, Dana Bash on uh, CNN actually on air called it a shit show. So I, th- I think, you know, that was a great summary. But anyway, um, if you guys didn't catch it, yep, there was a debate last night. And of course, at one point uh, during that debate, you know, so there is a real segue here. Um, when they came to the topic of the economy, which was like the third or fourth topic that the moderator, uh, Chris Wallace, brought up. And they came to the topic of the economy. It came up in that discussion. I believe either Biden brought it up or Chris Wallace brought it up first. In fact, I think it was Wallace actually asked a question about it. And then Biden kind of seized on it. Uh, but, but the subject of Trump's taxes came up. The, the revelation over the weekend, Sunday night, whatever it was, uh, that the New York Times was publishing information on, on 18 years worth of tax returns. Um, and specifically that in 2016 and 17, Trump had only paid $750 in federal income tax, not state tax, not, not FICA tax or anything like that, but specifically federal income tax, 750 bucks in 16, 750 bucks in 17. And that was kind of the, that was the point that they got hung up on. They talked about the 750, um, almost exclusively, if I remember correctly. Uh, I don't think they talked much about, um, at least in a, in a number sense, they didn't talk about uh, the massive carryover write-offs that, that Trump did several years over to, to basically pay no tax, okay, because the Times reported that 11 of the 18 years he paid zero tax. And it's kind of funny, like the 750 got more attention than the zero, <laughs> okay? So, I mean, more than half of those 18 years, Trump didn't pay anything in federal income tax, right? And so there was a number that was being carried over, a loss, you know, a certain amount of losses that he had taken in real estate that carried over year over year that was wiping out his income and thus leaving him with zero tax liability. So that didn't really, mathematically speaking, get any attention last night. The reason I say mathematically is at one point, uh, Trump made the argument that the, the real estate tax breaks in general that he enjoys were instituted by people like President, I mean, um, Vice President uh, Joe Biden, simply because Biden has been in the Senate and in Congress for, you know, whatever, 40 plus years. And it's the Congress that wrote those laws that allow real estate uh, investors to take those kinds of deductions. So we'll come back to that. We can do an examination on that. That's really kind of the, the key topic here today is how that happens. How, how did Trump you know, not pay tax 11 out of 18 years. We're going to answer that question today um, and give you guys some real insight on that. But anyway, in the debate, it was more about the 750 and not the zeros. So that kind of surprised me a little bit. And also the other uh, thing that came up, which I'm not going to tackle in this episode, I'm going to do it in probably the next one, uh, was all the deductions that were just shocking. 
you know, the 750000 consulting fees that appear to have been paid to Ivanka, uh, the $75,000 on hair styling. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the business deductions and legitimacy and how he did it and all that in another episode. But, but it was interesting to me that the only thing that really came up off the tax revelation was specifically the 750 and 16 and 17. Because I thought there were other more damning sound bites that uh, Biden could have used against Trump. And maybe I missed them. I mean, I watched the whole debate, but, you know, at times, you know, it's like you got to just kind of put your head down and check Twitter or something just to kind of clear your head. But anyway, so I had to do that sometimes. So anyway, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the incredible amount of losses that Trump was reporting and using to avoid tax 11 out of 18 years, okay? So here's the deal with Donald Trump with respect to the tax code. Okay, so the tax code, just giving you guys a little bit of history, and, and this is, you know, again, I've, I've read this, I've looked at this, I've kind of studied this a little bit. I'm not going to say I'm perfect at it. Somebody out there may know this even better and correct me, and please do if you, uh, if, if you come across something like that. But my understanding is that up until 1986, okay, so we're going to go back in time here a little bit. Up until 1986, no matter who you were or how much you invested in real estate, when you invested in real estate, if you took losses, you could take every dollar of loss and cancel a dollar of taxable income. So for example, simple numbers, let's say I made $100,000 a year. I invested in a couple of rental properties. The rental properties lost me $50,000. I could take the 50, subtract it from my $100,000 of income, and say that I only made $50,000 versus $100,000, right? 100 minus 50 equals 50, right? So I could cancel 50K of income with 50K of rental losses, no matter who I was. I mean, it could be Joe Smith down the street with three rental properties. I could be Donald Trump, you know, with, with billions of real estate under my belt. Anybody could do it. Okay, so in 1986, a very big tax bill, I mean, tax law got passed under Reagan working with a Democrat Congress. Uh, so, you know, very, very interesting that it even happened, guys, because it was in Reagan's second term, and it was like halfway through his second term almost. So, I mean, he was like real lame duck at that point. I mean, you know, I think he was like mired in Iran-Contra by, by that time, uh, or certainly in that year, 1986. But anyway, he passed this big tax reform bill where on the plus side, okay, if you're, if you're anti-tax, the upper tax brackets got slashed significantly. I mean, I think they were like way over 50%, maybe much higher than that, like 70, 80%, some, some crazy numbers as far as the upper range of the tax brackets. And they just slashed them down to like 20s and 30s, okay, percent-wise. Okay, so massive reduction in the tax bracket situation. But on the flip side, some, some loopholes got closed. And, you know, some, some very enjoyable ones, especially for real estate investors. And that was that they started to classify and categorize real estate investors differently depending on how you were investing in real estate and to what extent. So what I mean by that, and this is, again, my understanding is that after 86, there were basically three situations that you could end up in from a real estate investing perspective, Okay. 
Situation number one, which is the one we're going to look real closely at that applies to Donald Trump, is if you are a real estate professional. Okay, so let's just flag that and we're going to come back to it. It's very important. Okay, in fact, it's, it's the crucial item to how Trump got away with, you know, not paying tax 11 out of 18 years. Okay. The next category was if you were a passive real estate investor only. And by that, I mean, there are very specific rules the IRS publishes. I don't know them off the top of my head. I have to go look them up. And the only one I have kind of up on my screen here is the real estate professional one because I want to read that to you guys. But if you were, so I'm going to the other end of the spectrum, right? So there's real estate professional, you know, super heavily involved. Okay. And we'll look at those rules in a second. But the other end of the spectrum is just if you were purely a passive investor. So let's say you just bought a rental property and you just handed the whole thing over to somebody. You made no decisions about it. You, you, you barely even knew what was going on with it. You just bought it and handed it off and somebody was managing it and somebody was you know, sending you the rent checks and stuff like that. And that's the only thing you did is you opened the mail, took out the rent check and deposited it. You'd be considered a purely passive investor, which means the money you were making from the rental property was purely passive income. Therefore, you could only cancel other passive income with that rental income, so with those rental losses, excuse me. So let's say, for example, you know, you invest in a couple properties, you have nothing to do with them other than collecting the rent. You get somebody else managing them, somebody else making all the decisions on what happens, who gets, you know, you know, in place there as a tenant, whatever, you know, whether to do maintenance on it, whatever. And let's say you also had a stock portfolio, okay? And, you know, you, you, you occasionally traded stocks, took gains, took losses, whatever. So let's say in a given year, you sold some stock and you made $10,000 of passive income, okay, from the stocks, okay? Um, and actually, let me, let, me, um, let me revise that. If you sold stock, it'd be a capital gain or capital loss if you lost money. Let's say you were making uh, passive income from the stock. You're, you're like pulling in dividend income, okay? So, so you're making passive income from stocks, and let's say that's ten grand. Okay, of money that flows in as let's say a dividend, but then in your rental properties you lost ten grand. Okay, then you have a plus ten from stocks passive income, minus ten from real estate passive income. It's a wash. You'd have zero passive income to report on your taxes. So in other words, every dollar of loss in real estate passively would cancel every dollar of uh, passive income from the stock portfolio. Okay, one for one, passive to passive would reduce that amount. Now, if you also had a job and you, and you, know, you had a W-2 that paid you 100 grand, you're not going to be able to use the real estate. Let's say you didn't have the stock portfolio, right? Let's say you had 100K W-2, 10K of real estate losses. You couldn't use the 10K of real estate losses to bring down the 100K of uh, W-2 income uh, to 90K. Okay, that ended in 1986. So you can only go passive to passive, not passive to active income in terms of canceling uh, taxable dollars, okay, or you know, reducing taxable uh, um, liability, okay? Now, there was a middle ground that was established for the everyday real estate investor who was reasonably engaged, but not big time. Okay, and I'm using very layman type terms here. This is the way I understand it, so I'm telling you guys the way I understand it. So let's say you invest in a handful of rental properties. 
you owned at least 10% of every property, or if you pooled all the properties together, you owned at least 10% of the portfolio, okay? And you were actively participating. Now, when, when they say actively participating, of course, IRS always leaves some gray areas so people lunge too far and get caught and get penalized. Um, so they like to do that. They, I mean, they can't cover every base anyway. It's kind of unrealistic. But the IRS has some gray area on active participation. But some examples of actively participating would be you make a decision on tenants. So, for example, property manager calls you up. Hey, Chris, I got a tenant here. The credit is a little questionable, but they've got a great job, great income. They promise they're going to pay. Should we take them? Yes, take a chance on them. Boom, you're actively participating. You approve the tenant. Uh, hey, Chris, uh, got a leak in the roof at 123 Main Street. Uh, it's going to cost 10 grand to replace the roof. I don't see any other way we can proceed. Okay, you know, property manager, go ahead and replace the roof. Okay, so if you're in the mix making those kind of decisions, you're actively participating. So you have an, a participation bar that you have to get over, and you have an ownership bar that you have to get over, right? So basically, you know, if you meet those two criteria, you're actively participating, you own more than 10%, boom, you're an active real estate investor, and you get to claim up to $25,000 in losses. Now, my understanding on that is, again, this is going to be an imperfect thing. I mean, I always urge you guys to do your own research, double check me, go to Google, whatever. But I believe that at certain income levels, um, it phases out the 25000 So if you make like five hundred grand a year, you don't get the 25000 Okay, And it's somewhere between like a hundred and two hundred. and I think like from a hundred to one hundred and fifty, or from one hundred and fifty to two hundred, you eventually don't get to take the twenty five thousand. And it, but it phases out, like you know, it drops for like every dollar. So like, if I think if it's like if you make, and I'm just using this as an example, but let's say you make one hundred and fifty one thousand dollars, then you can only take twenty four thousand dollars in losses. You see what I mean? And then up to like one seventy five, then you cross over one seventy five, and now you're at zero. You can't take any losses. But again, I, I'm not exactly sure what the phase-out range is. You guys would have to take a look at that, um, Google that. But anyway, but that 25000 can cancel. Um, it can cancel active income, okay? So even though you're kind of passively earning it in the sense that it's rental income and it's coming in every month, it's kind of, it kind of gets reclassified as active income because you're actively participating. Like you are involved with the management of the property because you're making decisions and you're directing traffic on that property. So now it kind of makes that income active and now you can carry it over and cancel active income like a W-2 salary, for example. Okay. So that's the middle ground. That's the active real estate investor middle ground. And again, the 25000 is... Is, is you can carry it over. So for example, let's say I'm, I fall in this category of being an active investor and I take $40,000 in real estate losses, okay? I can use 25 and I can take the other 15 and leave them for next year. So let's say next year is a really good year and in, and in the next calendar year, I don't lose anything. Well, I've still got 15000 from the, pri- the prior year that I can deduct. You see, so it doesn't go away. It keeps carrying forward, carrying forward, carrying forward in perpetuity. At least that's how I understand it. I don't think there's any sunset to it. 
Okay, if there is, it's obscure and it, you know, normally wouldn't apply to somebody. Okay, the, the bottom line is it's very flexible. It's very flexible and carrying over, carrying over, carrying over. Okay, let's talk about real estate professional status. Okay, being a real estate professional essentially means that you can carry, you can deduct every single dollar of real estate loss towards any dollar of income. No cap, no limit, okay? Because it's considered that your trade or your business is real estate, that's like all you do, or the majority of what you do, you get to cancel dollar for dollar with no cap. When I say no cap, I mean no cap. I mean like, hey, I lost 700 million last year, I get to deduct 700 million. If I don't use all 700 million, I can carry over, let's say, the 500 million that I didn't use to the next year and to the next year and to the next year. Okay? Now, what does it mean to be a real estate professional? I mean, what are the requirements? Well, at a high level, I'm going to read from the IRS website here for a second for you guys, but at a high level, you have to materially, materially participate in each specific rental. Okay? And the material participation in a, what's called a separate real property trade or business is you have to pass a 50% rule um, in terms of uh, participation, a 750 hours rule, okay, is the secondary uh, requirement. And then there's a tertiary requirement. There's a, there's a 5% ownership rule, which is a little bit, um, a little bit different uh, th- th- that applies in, in other situations. So let's, let's take a look at what, what the IRS website says here. So if, so I'm on irs.gov here. And under real estate professional, it says generally rental activities are passive activities, even if you material, materially participated in them. However, if you qualified as a real estate professional, rental real estate activities in which you material, materially participated aren't passive activities. For this purpose, each interest you have in a rental real estate activity is a separate activity unless you choose to treat all interests in rental real estate activities as one activity. Okay. So that's kind of the introduction. Okay. And that's kind of what I've been talking to you guys about here. So what are the qualifications? It says here, you qualified as a real estate professional for the year if you met both of the following requirements. One. More than half of the personal services you performed in all trades or businesses during the tax year were performed in real property trades or businesses in which you materially participated. Okay? So more than half of the services you performed were performed in real property trades or businesses. That's the 50% rule. The second rule, you performed, and I'm quoting from irs.gov, quote, you performed more than 750 hours of services during the tax year in real property trades or businesses in which you materially participated. Okay. So again, 750 hours of service in real property or businesses. Okay. Now the 5% rule, because I'm going to come back to those two rules in a second, but the 5% rule, it just says here, don't count personal services you performed as an employee in real property trades unless you are a 5% owner of your employer. So what that's basically saying is if you materially materially participated as a real estate professional as an employee, okay, you were getting a W-2, 
you have to own at least 5%. You have to have some equity ownership. You can't just be like, oh, well, I'm employed by a real estate company so I can write off everything that has anything to do with real estate. I mean, obviously, you have to own something to get the deduction anyway. So they're just saying you have to own at least 5%. You can't own 1%. You can't own 2%. You have to own at least 5%. Okay, so again, that's kind of obscure. It's not the, the key rule that we're talking about here. It's the first two. But if you look at those two rules and why they are the way they are, the 50% and the 750, I mean, think about it this way. It's basically saying, first off, more than half your time has to be real estate, right? So it has to be more than the average thing you do, right? That's the greater than 50%. Then it can't just be, well, I worked two hours this year and one and a half hours was on real estate and the other half hour was on something else. So I'm a real estate professional. No, you have to clear a bar for a level of effort in total that went into real estate. Okay, so that's where the 750 hours comes in. Okay, so you have the 50% because it has to be the dominant thing that you do. And the 750 hours, you have to put in a certain level of effort in total, hours-wise, into real property trades or businesses. Okay, so if you notice, just passing one of these two tests doesn't do the trick, right? Because if you were to say, oh, uh, I worked 1,000 hours last year on real estate, right? Which, you know, is like, what, 20 hours a week, right? Or, you know, a few hours a day. It doesn't even seem that daunting. I mean, let's say you do have some rental properties and you're running around like a chicken with your head cut up. You can say, yeah, I, get, I, I, I logged 1,000 hours, so I passed the test. But let's say you had a job that you were at for eight hours a day. And the job was paying you a certain amount of money, obviously, you would then be in a situation where you wouldn't pass the test of where you you were doing more than half of your personal services in real estate, right? Because if you're doing about three hours a day on real estate, but eight hours a day at a job, guess what? You're not a real estate professional. You spend more time and more effort delivering a service in your job than you do being a real estate professional. Okay, so that's how, you know, because honestly, guys, like from my perspective, I've looked at this many times over and said, can I be a real estate professional? <laughs> because, because I spend over 750 hours a year on real estate. Okay, and I know that because I manage the portfolio that I'm involved in. Uh, I make decisions on tenants and repairs and maintenance. I do bookkeeping. I prepare tax returns. I mean, I, quite frankly, I easily surpass the 750 hours. Easily. Okay. Because again, 750 comes out to about two hours a day, right? Divided by 365. So um, so I easily do, on average, two hours a day. Because some days it's many more hours than that, and some days you know, it's a half hour. But it's over 750. The problem is there's something else I do that's more than half of my time. That's more time than real estate, right? That's more than the few hours a day I put into real estate. And so I constantly come back to this and I realize, okay, I don't pass the 50% rule, okay? I would say on average, real estate's probably about 25%, you know, 20, 25%, you know, something like that. If you really tried to quantify it, that's the number I would put on it, is that it's, it's, it's in the 20s, okay? So obviously, it's very advantageous to be a real estate professional. So I'm going to wrap up here, guys, to dovetail this into Trump's taxes. Donald Trump is a real estate professional. I mean, he can easily show 
that his business is real estate. Now, when he got into entertainment with like The Apprentice and all that kind of stuff, now maybe there were some questions there. I don't know how they navigated that, but I think you could still say, even if he, let's say, filmed that show a few hours a week or several hours a week, that more than 50% of his time was still going towards managing the real estate portfolio, you know, licensing his name to real estate investors or, you know, pro- you know other properties around the world or whatever. Uh, so he was, he was still doing more than 50% and, he, and I'm sure he did more than 750 hours. I mean, according to Trump, he, you know, he wakes up at 4 a.m. every day or 5 a.m. and only sleeps a few hours a night. So the guy's working with an 18 or 20 hour day. Okay, so he's going to pass the 750 hours and he's going to pass the 50%, even when he was heavily into entertainment, is, is my estimation. Okay, so Trump qualifies easily as a real estate professional. I mean, it might be the, you know, hate to say it, the gold standard of being a real estate investor from the IRS rule perspective. Now, obviously, his, his actual performance in terms of making these investments and managing this portfolio is a different story. In fact, the evidence seems to suggest he's quite bad at it. Uh, and that's another whole podcast, another whole topic. But the bottom line is, from an IRS rule perspective, Donald Trump is a real estate professional. So Donald Trump can write off unlimited losses that he suffers on his properties and cancel dollar for dollar any income he receives, and he can carry it forward in perpetuity. Okay? And so I think the question we have to ask ourselves, guys, this is individualized. I mean, I'm not telling you what to think, and I'm not really going into my own opinion here. We have to ask ourselves, is that the way the tax code should be written, right? Should somebody, and it's very specific to real estate here, guys. I mean, obviously, there's other tax breaks and stuff in the tax code. I'm not saying this is the only one. But I'm saying what I'm describing to you is very native to real estate, okay? We have to ask ourselves, do we want the tax code to create that kind of favorable condition for real estate investors. Now, a person who defended it, I believe, would come forward and say, there's great risk in taking, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, whatever it is, in loans from a bank, investing it into property, and trying to make that property a viable business, whether you're putting a tenant in there, whether you're putting a business in there as a, as a, as a um, you know, as your tenant, you know, like for commercial real estate, Whatever real estate that you're doing, a defender of this tax break may say, look, real estate brings great risk with it. You know, I mean, if, if, if you've ever owned a property and not been able to get a tenant in there or not been able to get a tenant out of there, then you probably understand what I'm saying, right? It's probably resonating with you because um, it can be quite painful to be in that situation. So you could argue that the way that we incentivize people to go take risk and go buy real estate properties is this. It's, it's basically saying, look, if you do this for a living, if you go out there and you really are, I mean, you're, you're a bona fide top to bottom real estate investor and that's all you do and you're taking that kind of risk, here's your tax break. You can write off every single dollar you lose against every single dollar you make. On the flip side, I think somebody could look at this and be like, it's too much. You know, it's, it, it, it eventually gets ridiculous. Like, Okay, it's not so bad if, you know, it's the guy who makes 100 grand and cancels, you know, 30 grand dollar for dollar uh, because, because he or she was at risk, right? But you may say, why does a billionaire need that tax break? I mean, why does somebody who already has so much money need to mitigate risk like that? They're already, I mean, their very billionaire status mitigates the risk, right? 
So there's a real argument, a real debate to be had there about whether this tax break is appropriate. Okay, if the answer is, so let's say you go through that calculus and you say, look, Chris, I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think somebody like Donald Trump, who claims to make nine figures in income a year, okay, uh, and I think he made that claim back in the 2016 election, uh, and he's probably repeated it since then. But you could say, I don't believe somebody who makes nine figures a year in income should be able to use this tax break to pay $0 in federal income tax. It's just ridiculous, right? I mean, let's say you come out on that side. Then you've got to turn your attention, or Donald Trump becomes your your clarion call, right? I mean, it becomes your example of why this is bad. But you've got to go over to the individuals or the entity that's responsible for putting this into law and say, I want this law changed. In other words, we need to move beyond that, that hunger for empty rhetoric of, yeah, we're going to raise taxes on the rich. Okay, you know, To some people, that sounds really good, and that's a really good proposition. If you fall in that category, you got to go a step further. You got to go to Congress, not to Donald Trump. You got to go to Congress, and you got to say, look, you guys wrote a law here. You guys are responsible for the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code, okay? It's Congress's responsibility to update and revise and, and administer that set of laws. And you need to rewrite it. You need to remove this tax break. You need to either phase it out as, as income goes up, or you need to just get rid of it altogether and say, look, real estate is no different from any other business. You know, if I open a flower shop, if I open an online e-commerce business, or I buy a commercial real estate building, bottom line is I'm taking risk and I shouldn't be able to cancel dollar for dollar with no cap. Maybe I shouldn't be able to cancel dollar for dollar at all. You know, maybe it's just a different kind of income uh, that should not be able to cancel out active uh, earned income. There's all different ways you could go with it. But I think the bottom line is you go to the source, okay? I mean, and maybe you say, look, hey, Congress, I am incensed that somebody like Donald Trump pays zero taxes. And now I know why. I know what he is. He's a real estate professional. He's using the tax code as it's written. I mean, honestly, like, in the next episode, we'll talk about some of his deductions, you know, for, you know, 75 grand in hairstyling and stuff like that. That's the stuff that really got, you know, manipulated and twisted around to, to create those deductions where, you, you know, he's out on a limb. Real estate professional is straightforward. I mean, there's no, I mean, you can't even say you're gaming the, the tax code with the real estate professional provision, okay? I mean, if you do 75 grand on hairstyling, because you're in entertainment, you could argue, yeah, that's gaming the tax code a little bit. Is that really a business expense? I mean, we will explore that in another episode. But I think when you're talking about this specific issue, you know, how did Donald Trump take a 900? And that's what I think the number was, by the way, guys. I think Rachel Maddow uh, actually explored that uh, a couple years ago, actually, on her evening program, where she had a 1040 from like 2005, I think, or something like that. Like somebody came on the program, they had a single 1040 which is the top sheet, you know, in a tax return. I mean, it's the main core document at the top of your personal tax return, Form 1040. But she had a 1040 that showed that Donald Trump wrote off that he had a $950 million loss in real estate that I believe he'd been carrying forward from like, you know, when his businesses blew up in the 1990s, okay? 
And he was using that massive nine-figure loss to cancel out any income he was making, like the actual cash that he was bringing in from his real estate uh, rental properties. So that's where you say, hey, Congress, I don't like that a guy like Donald Trump, who claims to have all this money and is super rich, gets to write off $950 million in real estate losses. I don't want that to be the case. Rewrite the tax code. Okay, if you want to, quote, raise taxes on the rich, don't take the upper income tax bracket from 37 to 39%. That doesn't do anything. That's not going to move the needle. I mean, rich people are just going to find a way to get out of the 39%. I mean, it's just ridiculous. What you do is you go to Congress and you say, I don't think we should have tax breaks like a real estate professional, quote unquote. It's too liberal. It's too loose. It it allows somebody with tons of money to write off tons of money, right? Because when you're playing in that, when you're playing on that field and you're, and you're dealing with, with, you know, multiple or scores of commercial real estate property, I mean, you're, you're borrowing millions, you're making millions and you're losing millions. So you have these big, massive millions of dollars uh, 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 of write-offs that you're then using to cancel the millions of dollars um, that you're making, okay? And then, you're, and then here you are. You're a rich guy or girl, and you make millions, and you're living an extravagant lifestyle, but you're paying no tax because you lost millions. And you lost millions through, you know, different ways of getting to those numbers, you know, by, by calculating every expense you had on the property, every maintenance bill, but on top of that, every bit of depreciation, Okay, and that's something Donald Trump has uh, touted many times before in speeches and so forth where he talks about how much he loves depreciation. Uh, and I think I talked about depreciation way back in this podcast, like one of the first few episodes. And just as a reminder, depreciation is a paper loss on real estate that derives from the principle that over time real estate loses value due to wear and tear. So in other words, as a building or a house sits there year after year after year after year, you know, from weathering, from damage, from, from you know, lightning strikes, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever happens to it, it's losing value. There's wear and tear on the property. So every year, you get to deduct a certain amount of money because of that. It's not a real loss. You didn't pay anybody. You didn't take any money out of your pocket and pay somebody for wear and tear. It's just happening in the background. And it's devaluing the property over time, and it becomes a deduction on your taxes. So when you're, when you're playing in the millions of dollar range in terms of real estate, you have a lot of depreciation that you're taking on those properties. In fact, you can accelerate and front load that depreciation through things like cost segregation studies and cost segregation analyses. I won't get into that right now, but it's a way to take you know, a depreciation schedule of about 30 years and cram it into one year. And all of a sudden, you can buy a property and just wipe the whole thing out with one year's worth of depreciation. And pays no tax at all, right off the bat. Okay, now, you know, you use all that depreciation up front, so then you got to buy another property the next year or whatever, and you got to keep doing it. Otherwise, you know, obviously, you used all the depreciation up front, you can't keep using it, but it is a very powerful tax tool. It is a tool that people like a Donald Trump would use to front load the depreciation, take massive losses up front, get to that $950 million figure, and then use it to wipe away all his income. Okay? So again, guys, we have a tax code that facilitates and allows people in his position to do what I just described. If we don't like it, 
then we go to Congress, we say, take these provisions out of the tax code. Stop favoring wealthy real estate investors. Stop allowing wealthy real estate investors to get wealthier because they accumulate these properties and they never get a tax bill, right? So they never give anything back. It's not like, you know, hey, I bought all these properties, I made all this money, and I gave back, you know, 10, 20, 30 million to the government, okay? So that's what we have to change if we believe that this is not right as it stands today, okay? So anyway, guys, I I think this is a good productive episode, a little longer than I expected, but I wanted to really dive into this specific issue of how did Donald Trump not pay taxes 11 out of 18 years? Like, how did it get to zero 11 out of 18 years? And it got to zero primarily, if not maybe some years solely, because he is classified as a real estate professional in the IRS's eyes. Now, uh, some housekeeping, guys. I'm going to post the link to the IRS web page that talks about real estate professional. I'm going to post that uh, both at Christopher Anastasio LLC Facebook page and at Wealth for Real. So I'll get it up on both sides there. Uh, and then I have to go back and post um, Modern Money Mechanics. I actually did not do that, uh, as I mentioned uh, that I would to you guys back on Monday. Um, I mean, I tweeted out Modern Money Mechanics a long time ago, like a couple months ago. But I want to get it up on the Facebook page with the podcast so you guys could see the link to Modern Money Mechanics. Uh, so we'll do both of those today. Uh, get that posted. Uh, it'll just link you over to uh, the, the, the the pamphlet. You can always download the pamphlet. I think it'll download as a PDF, but I'll, I'll put the URL up there for that, and I'll put the URL up for Real Estate Professional. Uh, next episode, guys, or at least one of the next few, uh, we'll come back to this topic. Really, it'll be part three of three, unless something new comes up, where we'll really kind of explore the tax deductions that Donald Trump took, some of these crazy deductions, you know, the hairstyling and all that, and talk about, like, why was that even possible and what does it mean for you? Like, how you know, can you follow suit, you know, if you wanted to, uh, and how would you do that? So I think that'll be kind of an instructive uh, uh, episode because we can really look at, you know, in, in, in some of the more ridiculous items that came out of this uh, New York Times story, you can really look at like how that happened and, and, and how you can replicate that if you, you know, if you so desire. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's also going to be some other stuff uh, that's been circulating. Uh, shout out to Jason, uh, sent me a great article uh, that talked about, it kind of goes back to the debt creation issue, you know, the issuance of debt constantly. There's a really interesting article that came out about that. Uh, and brought up the subject of basic universal basic income. So I want to get into that as well. And I think these topics kind of build on each other. So if you guys are listening, uh, it'll be very helpful for you to kind of listen to the whole batch. You know, and I'll tell you as I go along which episodes. I mean, right now, if you listen to episodes 36 and 37, that's this one, uh, you can get a look at, at what I'm looking at here with, with the Trump tax issue. Uh, and like I said, probably episode 38 uh, will be the part three. So we'll get those three together. And then I'll move into that article that I just mentioned uh, that that discusses the basic income. Uh, But anyway, guys, really appreciate everybody listening. Uh, Super, super thankful for that. Uh, Follow me over at Twitter, at CJ Anastasio. uh, Also at wealth underscore four underscore real. And then Facebook, at Christopher Anastasio LLC. And at wealth for real, all one word. Uh, But anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Definitely want to hear the feedback. Definitely want to hear what you guys think about this topic. You know, where do you come out? I mean, is this like, hey, I love these tax laws and I want to use them? Or, hey, I hate these tax laws and I want them them reversed. 
you know, would really be interested in, in where everybody stands on that. But anyway, you guys have a great day. Uh, midweek, uh, we'll get one more episode up this week before the weekend. Uh, but again, thanks so much, guys. Uh, stay safe and take care. And have a good night. Bye-bye.